New writing. New North. writing. New North. writing. North. New writing. You're North. listening to a podcast by New Writing North. This episode of the New Writing North podcast was recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. In this episode, palliative care specialist Dr. Catherine Mannix, author of the best-selling book With the End in Mind, explores one of the biggest taboos in our society and the only certainty we all share: death. Catherine is in conversation with Professor Douglas Davis, Director of Durham University's Centre for Death and Life Studies. I'm Douglas Davis. I'm a professor here at the university and director of our Centre for Death and Life Studies. First of all, I'd like to welcome you all very much here on this uh, slightly grey afternoon but for a subject that is multicolored, multifaceted, and deeply important. And on your behalf, I'd like to welcome Catherine Catherine Mannix, our author today. And we will talk together. Catherine will read to us a little, and towards, a little later on, we will have an open forum when you can express your own thoughts, make your own points, raise issues as and when, you wish and as you feel. This is one of those days when it's a subject not like Meccano railway sets or something that we might have some passing knowledge of, but is the kind of day when most of us here, I guess, will have lost somebody, someone who's belonged to us has died, and that's important to us, and we, we have our memories of that, our thoughts of that, and our bodily feelings about it as well. We bring those with us and we share them In one sense, we're all in the same boat or other. And Catherine has been in her life experience on that boat a bit more than most of us, helping us uh, sail away in one shape or form, and will talk to us about that. I thought I would, at the outset, say how much I've enjoyed reading this particular volume. As I said to you earlier on when we were talking, it uh, took me a little bit by surprise because it was unlike all books I've read, I think, in, in, in some ways, which is one reason why everybody will want to buy a copy later on and take it and, take it and read it. Uh, it's, it's one of those books, I think, I don't know how you wrote it, perhaps you can tell us about that, one of those books that I would not read all in one sitting or even in one week, but might like to read a little of and then a little more of, and a little more... How did you write it, in fact, Catherine? Was it uh, in in one big splurge, or did it take time? It it took me... Hello, everybody. Thank you all for coming. This is amazing. It took me about a year, or 40 years, depending on which way you look at it. Um, But I I had a, a commission to write it, so I had a deadline to write for. Um... And since I was a medical student, I've been keeping notes about patients who, who touched me deeply. It was a way of getting things, you know, kind of out of my head and into a safe place on a piece of paper. Obviously, I could never put names on them. So when I came to look back through them afterwards, I could see them. Some of them I could remember the names of, but, but not everybody, because we look after so many people in a lifetime. And I wrote in fits and starts because I wasn't quite sure how to write. I knew what I wanted to say. What I wanted to say was, come and sit on this chair by me here, person who's reading this book, 
Um, and, and let's sit together and let's look at these things and let's find out about them, not by me being a kind of teachy teller, but by us just re-experiencing what's happened to these people so that you can see what the pattern is, what actually happens as we reach the very end of our lives and how while there are some things that are happening, which is death unwinding us, um, there's so much living going on at the same time, which is actually much more important for most people than the dying that is taking place at the same time. Um, so I knew it needed to be stories and not case histories. And so when I wrote them, sometimes they came out and they read like stories and they felt good and sometimes oh, I've got a good one here and I write it all out and then it would just sound like something from, a, from, from the British Medical Journal you just know that that's the information is right but the, the storytelling has mm. gone, gone wrong and have to go back to the drawing board so it took a while in fits and starts and going back to that drawing board I think has worked tremendously because it, it is a book of short stories if one looked at it from one angle it, it's like a book of short stories, and it's gripping. It reminded me a little bit, I, you know, as a professor, I shouldn't say this, but I, I, I love reading things like Dan Brown and, and, and those marvellous stories and Harry Potter. And one reason I loved them was because the chapters were never too long, really. You could get through it, get something out of it, and then look forward to the next one. But the next one, as we'll see ere long, I think, could be quite different from the one before. Mm -hmm. And it struck me that throughout the book, there's a sameness and a difference. There's a sameness about the human condition, and I'm sure you'll say more about that in a minute or two, about the process, because you use the word process a lot, the process of dying, and explaining that to relatives and talking about that to your patients. But in a way, I'm not sure I ever saw the word patient in the book. I, I might be wrong there. But it, the people there, the named individuals, I know you've changed the names, they didn't come across like patients, though of course they were pa patients in, in a sense. So there was that constant changing. And one of the things that really struck me in the book was your and now, you, now you're looking at me, and this is really good, or really bad, as the case may be, uh, because you've got an eye for description, for an eye for capturing what you see and, and telling us. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, just try a few of these for size. You're talking at one point about you're going to see someone. A windy day, wrinkled nut-brown leaves are scuttling across the car park, like a mischief of excited mice. Isn't that wonderful? A collective note, a mischief of excited mice. And here we are in the autumn. It's around us uh, absolutely everywhere. Or when you're talking about Mark, another one of, of the stories you take us into. Uh, you're seeing him in, in the hospice. And you talk a bit about the fear of that word hospice in some people's minds until the experience is, is there. All skin and bone, like a stick insect in an oxygen mask. It's a remarkable description, a stick insect in an oxygen mask. You must, ladies and gentlemen, be prepared in every one of these stories to have the flutter in the stomach. You're either going to weep or you're going to have an intake of breath 
during one of the sentences comes up when the depth, the pathos, the joy of human life gets you. And uh, uh, that was certainly the case with me as a, uh, as whatever. <laughs> I wondered maybe, um, Catherine, if you'd like to, to, to read us a section to give us a, take us into the sort of genre that this short story book about our life and death describes to us. Okay, so we, we did a little bit of work beforehand to decide uh, which sections we might read. So this, this is uh, the beginning of a story called Hat. Penny was choosing a wedding dress in a rather refined shop with her mum, Louisa. As she reached out to straighten Penny's veil, Louisa felt her hip bone snap with a loud crack. She went very white and passed out on the powder pink carpet, and there was a flurry of ladylike panic as the grand dame of the trousseau tried to ensure that their prostrate customer didn't crush any dresses. They also, also thoughtfully rang for an ambulance, so that by the evening, Louisa was in, in an orthopedic ward with her leg immobilized and a diagnosis of cancer secondaries in her hip from a breast cancer treated several years previously. Penny hadn't chosen a wedding dress either. Louisa did not thrive on her orthopedic board. In the late 1980s, a broken hip was initially managed by holding the broken bones in position using a series of weights and pulleys to pull against the strong muscles that anchor our legs to our pelvis because if the thigh bone breaks, those same muscles unhelpfully pull the bone shards painfully into the soft tissues of the thigh. Fit young patients with sports or trauma injuries might then be offered a hip replacement, but cancer patients would be offered radiotherapy and weeks of immobility to see whether the bone would reunite to allow walking again. Louisa realized that she would have to spend her daughter's wedding day in hospital, in a nighty, with her legs suspended in mid-air. This is not a traditional look in wedding photographs. She was devastated and missing the wedding was worse news than, the, than knowing that her cancer was back and was now incurable. She pined, declined, lost weight, wept, and descended into a deep, intractable depression. Fitter patients with hip injuries came in for surgery and left walking with crutches, while Louisa stopped coloring her hair and let her root, gray roots start to show, lost interest in makeup or even discussions of wedding dresses, and adopted a helpless, hopeless gaze. The nursing team, affected by her hopeless helplessness, reduced their contact time as their attempts at cheery banter were rebuffed. Louisa became isolated, a lonely and frightened statue. A lonely and frightened statue. It's another one of those descriptions that gets you and that particular account goes on to a friendship that is then struck up within the hospice situation with a, a Nigerian woman who is also seriously ill and who brings joy. And together things happen and she does go to the wedding, as it were. And we, we share in that sort of revitalization for a moment that goes on through the contact of someone who's in, in, that, in a similar situation. 
in one sense, that's a very good example of the, the emotional dynamics of the book because one of the things I liked about it so much was the, the spectrum of emotions that it covers. And I like the sort of semi-Shakespearean element when every now and again, in italics, there's a little aside so that the readership should know what's going on in Catherine's mind as she engages with people. And within that emotional world, it struck me, that what we really encounter, one of the things we encounter, is the difference between how opaque life can be, people's situations can be, people's illnesses can be, within the family situation. Mm -hmm. Maybe opaque to other people in the family and perhaps even opaque to themselves. And then to transparency and the kind of conversations that you have. And you've got a wonderful descriptions in the book of how you like to, to, to kneel down, to sit low, I'm surprised we didn't actually sit on the floor this evening, but here we are in chairs. Except when you're dealing with one particular family, you notice it, people from a particular cultural background who respect authority, who expect a certain things from the consultant, mm -hmm. because here we are, you know yourself, as someone who in palliative care had that status, and you knew that for them it was important that you should sit upright in the chair. Sit properly. Sit properly, mm. which, which you dutifully did. But it's interesting, isn't it? Sitting, sitting's a really important thing. Um, there's something about turning what is expected to be a consultation into a conversation instead. And there's a power balance if somebody's standing up and the other person is ill and is sitting or lying down that is the wrong balance, I think, particularly mm. in, in palliative care. So um, when I worked in a hospice, one of the rules of the ward round, well, the two very, very important rules of the ward round, one was that we didn't start without a cup of tea. Um, so we would sit in the office together and have a cup of tea and discuss the issues that we wanted to raise as we got to each of the different patients, instead of that thing that you see in hospital dramas where the, everybody's sitting or, or standing talking around the trolley about the person in this bed here, which just seems awful. So we'd be in the office with a cup of tea. And then the other thing was that when we got to the bedside, everybody would find a way of having their head no higher than the patient's head. So we would sit, we would kneel, we would perch on window ledges, we would make it not look as though we were orchestrating something, but we, we are here, we are with you, we're on the level, and sitting says, I'm spending time with you. When you visit people at home, there's usually not a chair in the position that you want to be in to make eye contact ah. with the person. Uh -huh. So perching on the floor is, is very often the thing. And a cup of tea again. So one of the things that was very funny for me was when I submitted the first draft of the book, um, my editor phoned me up um, and she said lovely things about, you know, this, that and the other. And she said, but, you know, there's too many cups of tea. <laughs> there's too many cups of tea. So um, I did a word search through it and, in fact, there were 38 cups of tea. And I don't think there are 38 patients, so that's, you know, quite, quite, quite astonishing. But the cup of tea is a really, mm. really important part of the transaction that says, look, here's, yeah. here's us now having a cuppa, yeah. and we're going to talk about this important thing that's going on for you. Mm. 
but we're people. Mm. It's, you know, me, doctor, you, patient is not a useful relationship mm. in, in this kind of situation. The common humanity thing is big in the book. It, it strikes me. And the situations in which we speak of our common humanity, our fellow feeling, and that's back to that sort of transparency, opacity thing again, mm. that the person who has always been in control of his diary, who organizes his life, he hasn't got time to be ill. There'll be many people in this room who in some shape or form in their lives haven't got time to be ill. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, realizing that time takes on a different significance when one is yeah. ill, terminally ill, or when someone one loves is, that time shift. Yeah. Is, is something that goes on there. Mm. And maybe that nice cup of tea element slots in there well. Well, I think if you make a cup of tea, and it always is a little bit surprising for people if the person who's come to be the professional carer, because we work in teams, uh, so very often it won't be me, it'll be a, a palliative care nurse who's visiting a patient at home. Um, and we may very well make the tea. And that kind of surprises people a little bit. You've got to judge it carefully. Mm. You don't want to be coming in and demanding to see the kitchen. But uh, there are ways of enabling cups of tea yeah. to appear. Yes, there'd be a good student essay in this book on tea and the engineering of social situations. When she knows she's got cancer and dying, but she doesn't think he knows. He knows that she's got cancer and dying, but not sure that she knows. Um, and that, that transformation from opacity to transparency comes partly when she jolly well tells him, pet, to go and make the tea. Oh, that, that was a very, very wonderful encounter. So um, Nellie and Joe, an absolutely wonderful older couple, and she had uh, quite extensive cancer. There was no more treatment for her, and she was being very sick. Um, and my special party trick as a palliative physician was uh, an interest in nausea, so I would, I'd been sent for, that's why I was there. Uh, and he invited me into the house and, and then took me into the living room. No patient, very tidy living room. And then says, you're not to tell her. You know, tell, her tell her what then? Uh, you can't tell her it's cancer, the shock will kill her. No, so that, that's definitely slightly awkward, isn't it? Um, but the thing is that he loves her, doesn't he? And he's trying to contain the situation and he's mm -hmm. trying to protect her from the awfulness that's going on. So actually, I've learned over the years to not say, you must, you must be joking, uh, but to acknowledge that that comes from a position of, of love and concern and to say that I, I can't promise that I won't say something if she asks me directly, but why don't you come with me so you're part of the conversation um, so that he can hear that it comes up because she makes it come up. Um, but of course, as soon as we're upstairs in the bedroom, she immediately sends him down to make tea. And um, this is a tiny little miner's cottage in County Durham. So you can hear him creaking down the stairs. And as soon as he's creaked round the bend in the stairs, she leans forward over her massive tummy and says to me, I don't know how to tell him. Tell him what? He said, well, you must know it's cancer. And I, I, I don't know how to tell him. So, you know, he's protecting her, she's protecting him. Um, he comes back up and she stops talking and he says, are you annoying, are you upsetting my wife? 
He's holding this teapot. No, I'm not upsetting your wife. Um, so he pours the tea, and then she says, Biscuits? Have you got biscuits for the doctor? And she sends him back downstairs again. The thing is, you don't know, this might have been a couple who have spent a whole lifetime mm. managing things separately. So I thought, yeah. well, okay, what's, what's the worst thing you've ever had to deal with together before this? And she tells me that they can see the, the pit head through the window in this bedroom. And it's a disused pit now, of course. Um, but she tells me that their son was killed in that pit in an accident. And that the hardest part of that is that nobody ever says his name anymore. So we are talking about mm. Kevin, and she is tearful when he reappears with the biscuit tin. And I thought he was probably going to brain me with the biscuit tin. Um, but by then, she's into her stride. She's remembered how they cope mm. with things, and she tells him to sit down and be quiet and give the doctor a biscuit. And then says, so the doctor's got something to say. So, uh, so, so the doctor says something along the lines of, I can see how very much you love each other. And I'm really concerned to see that part of what's happening now is that Joe is downstairs being concerned about Nellie. And you can see her going, what? And Nellie's upstairs being concerned about the same thing about Joe. And he tries to interrupt me, and she just says, stop it, Joe, I'm dying. We both know it. Mm. I took the tea tray downstairs at that point, because the job was done. They, they knew how to do this. Mm. They just didn't know how to get to that moment. Yeah. And then two things came to mind as you were talking then. One, in one sense, there you were on your own. But you referred earlier on to the team, that very often you, you, well, you are part of of the team, mm. including the backroom boys, the lab technicians, and on how some of them were aware of, alert to a particular individual, because they're reading the papers all the time, they're doing mm. the analyses all the time. I thought that was quite touching. And also the, the, the other point where forms of aggression, I suppose, and fear coming out as aggression and all that sort of thing, where one of the hospice staff, you've had a patient in who said, I mean, much of your work you describe as being pain control, and maybe we'll come back to that, but somebody with really difficult pain trouble, and you think it would be really useful if there was a post-mortem, because you could, as it were, perhaps get to the bottom of it in a way in which your surface diagnosis wasn't getting at it, and one of the hospice staff takes against this, and I can only do my Welsh accent, I can't do a Scottish one, but you know, she, she lays into you that hasn't the poor person had enough already without cutting her up sort of thing. And that's a brilliant story because it goes on to cut a long story. Well, listen, they're not long stories. They're, they're short stories. But to cut the short, even that story short, you, you go, you take that, in, that colleague with you to the post-mortem and and also the sister, I think. Mm. And the, the more senior, as it were, is not really into this. She, she looks away a bit. But the person who's been really against you, she's there, she can't get enough. And then, and this is one of the marvelous moments in the book for me, uh, and it's on the color of cancer. Because this lass looks into, into the body and she sees this white stuff. And she, and she says, oh, she says, 
she's surprised by the color. And this, we're into symbolism and big time now. She wasn't expecting white, but black or red or something. And that's an interesting moment. But then that person comes to see the value of the knowledge that you've gained from where the particular cancer was in relation to a particular nerve that you couldn't have known in any other way. That was an interesting episode, I thought. Oh, it was, it was, it was a wonderful episode. We were quite a new team at the time. Um, so when they got cross with me because I wanted to have a post-mortem, I just thought, oh, you know, I've spoilt it all now. Um, and one of the ways, I, I guess one of the things is, in, in, in our careers, whatever it is that we do, we gradually become more senior. But we still feel we're the same on the inside, so we perhaps don't notice that with seniority come other things. Mm. So the point this nurse was making to me when I said, you know, I'd be really intrigued to find out why, why we never got... She had lots of pains, this lady, and we got all of them right but one. But that one niggled until her dying day, and I wanted to know why. And this nurse said to me, but if you ask the family permission, they will have to say yes because you are the consultant. And I was a very new consultant, and that idea that mm. there was um, something that I didn't intend simply because of the title was a completely new idea to me. And the ward system was very clever and said, well, then... Um, why don't you, Moira, who knows the patient best, why don't you ask for permission? Because they could say no to you, couldn't they? So Moira goes off to talk to the family, and she could have just not asked them. Mm. But she reappeared, looking a little bit nonplussed, to say, well, they'd like to know a bit more, and they'll sign the forms. And I just, I loved her, that she would have had the integrity to ask that question. And even though she didn't think it was the right thing mm. to do, she would give them that option. So when she came and saw where this cancer was and where this little tiny bead of cancer was that was rubbing a nerve and giving exactly the pain that this patient had, um, the two things that she said was, every pain that's funny that we can't explain from now on, we'll wonder about something rubbing a nerve, won't we? So we've changed the way we're going to care for people with difficult pain for the rest of our practice lifetimes. But also, she went on to become a nurse tutor and used to ask that all of her students before they graduated should attend at least one post-mortem. So, again, she's changed the understanding mm. of what we can learn after somebody has died for generations of nurses who've yeah. qualified subsequently. Very early on in the book, you tell us of a kind of a flashbulb moment when you, it dawned on you that communication was of the essence and that communication would be something that you would be into, as it were, mm. in your life. And the book tells us how you did. And in fact, the book is a very good example of the communication which we, which we will all share in. And you mentioned that the white there, not just tea, but colour keeps propping up in interesting kinds of ways, where you've got uh, Walter, it is, uh, who, who, when he looks at you, when, you, when he finally, as it were, looks at you, you see the deep buttercup, yellow, of the whites of his eyes. And all of a sudden, we are there with you, even though we might not have seen such a thing. Our imagination is there. There's a tremendous realism. I wondered, Catherine, whether you might read us, give us another case. Okay. And 
game we were talking a little bit earlier, maybe, maybe Mark's. Okay, so, so Mark, Mark was very interesting, one of my younger patients. He was a young man who had, thank you, who had cystic fibrosis. So he'd lived with breathlessness all of his life. And because treatment for the um, different things that afflict people who have the genes for cystic fibrosis, uh, treatments are much better now. So people no longer die in childhood. They live to adulthood and sometimes to late middle age. If they have a, a lung transplant, people can live very much longer. Um, but to have a lung transplant, you've got to be at a critical stage where you're still well enough that the lungs you've currently got will allow you to get through the anaesthetic procedure and then have your blood artificially oxygenated whilst the old lungs are removed and the new lungs are put in and survive a period in the intensive care unit. So you can't be absolutely at death's door. But you've got to now be so sick that death is in sight. So Mark, at the age of around about 26, had the conversation with the surgeons that he was now a candidate for a lung transplant. And he'd had this conversation just before Christmas. So this young man who'd been well capable of running his life, um, going to the pub, watching the football, causing bother in a bar... He was a lad, and suddenly he could not leave the hospital. He could not be left alone. He was utterly, utterly terrified. So I was sent for on Boxing Day to meet him in the hospital. Um, and this is the stick insect in, the, in an oxygen mask that we were talking about before. And I used um, techniques taken from my practice as a cognitive therapist to help him to understand that he was frightening himself with his own fear that every time he took a test breath to see how he felt he noticed that his breathing didn't feel normal when his breathing hadn't felt normal for probably 15 years by this stage of his life but now that he's on the transplant list he thinks his breathing not feeling normal might mean that he's about to die so he takes another test breath, which also doesn't feel normal. So now he's frightened. So now he makes adrenaline. So now adrenaline is flooding his system. His heart's starting to hammer. He realizes that he is, in fact, on the brink of death. And he'd had that feeling at least once an hour every day since he'd seen the transplant team. So we chatted together about it and had quite an interesting discussion about it during which he was able to realise the mind game that he was playing with himself. And over the next several weeks and a couple of months, he used cognitive therapy techniques to allow himself to defuse his catastrophic thinking, get back home, get back to the pub. We really hoped he might get to transplant. The ward team phoned me on a Saturday to say that Mark was dying and did I want to see him? Does he want me to? Yeah. Are his parents there? Yes. Come in and check there isn't anything we're missing, they said. I was glad to go. Mark's favourite physio had also come in on her day off and was in his room along with Mark's parents and the ward sister. All was solemn and red-eyed. Goodbye is always hard. Oh, it's you, he greeted me, 
lying in a fetal position, propped up by pillows and with oxygen pipes up his nose. He was breathing very fast and was only able to say one or two words per breath. Are you here for Coggy Thingy or for Pally Watsit? I'm here to see if you need a decent cup of coffee, I said. He'd set me on making a cup of coffee test before he'd ever agreed to meet me in the first place. He grinned and then he asked his parents to leave the room for a moment. His glittering eyes shifted around the room, vigilant and wary, yet his smile was sincere. Ye should be fucking proud of me, he announced, his ability to swear still utterly intact. Really? Why is that then? I am not going to cry. Well, look at this. I'm fucking dying and I'm not fucking panicking, he declared, delighted with himself and allowing himself a deathbed swagger. Smiling tearfully at each other, okay, so perhaps I'm going to cry. We both understood that this was Mark's great moment of personal triumph. He realised he was dying. He was about to be given drugs to relieve his breathlessness that he knew would make him sleepy. He'd already told his mum that he couldn't bear to see her being sad, so she must wait outside and his dad would keep watch while he was dying. Using cognitive therapy principles that he'd been practising for only a few weeks, Mark had managed his distress, planned his deathbed, and as he said, he was not effing panicking. He'd learnt not to fear his fear, and he guarded his peace of mind heroically to the last. What a lad. Thanks. The coggy thingy, the um, cognitive behavioural therapy. It is really interesting in the book to see how your movement into that or acquisition of that new skill, as it were, interplays with the palliative care uh, as another kind of reminder of our embodiment as people, of our thoughts and feelings mm -hmm. uh, r running together. I wondered if you could describe for us something that's really important in the book and runs throughout it really, and it's about breathing. Mm. And we were talking a little bit earlier on about... Uh, the book is remarkably free from technical stuff. It's written not just in good plain English, but in stylistic storytelling narrative. English. And it's only when we're three quarters or 75% or whatever it was, the way through the book that you, you gave, for me at least, um, a term that I'd never heard before, and that was the Chain Stokes pattern of breathing. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us something about that? Because I'm sure many of us here just need to know that. Okay. So the reason I wrote this book is because I had a light bulb moment very early on in my palliative care career, which is described in the book. When having been qualified for four years and having worked on lots of wards where many, many patients died, and it wasn't related to the fact that I was their doctor. They were very sick patients, just before anybody calls the police. <laughs> um, I'd seen lots and lots of dying, but almost always from the vantage point of a junior doctor who's trying to stop somebody from dying or trying to do something else alongside their dying rather than standing back and watching. 
And when I first began to train in a hospice, my consultant took me with him when he went to talk to a woman whom we knew to be extremely brave. This woman had been a member of the French Resistance, and she had her French Resistance ribbon pinned on her, on her nightie to remind her that she could be brave. And she feared that she would die in agony, and that if she died in agony, um, it wasn't just the agony, and it wasn't even the dying that was the problem. If she despaired at the point of death, she would be separated in eternity from her husband who died before her, who she was so looking forward to being re reunited with in heaven. So this was an absolute catastrophe scenario that if she lost her courage because of her suffering, mm. she would lose him for eternity. Um, so my consultant said he was going to go and talk to her and uh, in invited me to come along. And... I thought he was going to go and talk to her about how we would manage her pain so that she didn't have to have that worry. But he sat down and his preamble was, I've heard you've been really frightened about what the last moments of your life are going to be like. And I was thinking, what? You can't say that to a patient. And she just leapt forward and said, we. Oui. Um, and he said, well, I wonder if it would be helpful if I explained to you what happens when people are dying, what will happen to you as you die. And I think these are probably things in italics of my head going, you can't possibly have that conversation with somebody. And so what he explained to her was what this book is explaining to anybody who wants to pick it up and reading, that as we die, just as what happens when people go into labour and start to give birth is a recognisable sequence of events... As we die, our body also performs another recognisable sequence of events. And it starts with being more weary and needing additional sleep. And a bit like, you know, when your mobile phone battery just isn't recharging properly anymore, you, it spends larger, longer on charge and shorter duration of actually working. We're a bit like that. We hang ourselves on a charger by having a snooze. And then we wake up and we have a bit more energy for a while and then the cycle repeats. And it doesn't really matter what the illness is. All of the illnesses that kill us sap our energy by different mechanisms, but this end pathway is the same, of weariness, needing to sleep more, and gradually during the sleeps becoming unconscious, going into a coma. And when we wake up again, we've had a nice sleep, so we know people don't notice this lapsing into a coma. It doesn't feel like falling asleep feels... At the very end of somebody's life, we're just asleep and in and out of unconsciousness until we're just fully unconscious all the time. And when we're unconscious, what unconsciousness means is the bit of the brain that controls our knowing of what is going on is no longer working. And the only thing that's still working in our brain is the back bit of the brain, the brain stem, that manages breathing. And when it's not getting instructions from anything else, like at the moment I'm thinking about my breathing so I can take a breath and say a sentence and then take another breath, when the brain's getting no other instructions, it does this automatic breathing cycle, which is technically called chain stokes breathing. He didn't tell her that, and I didn't tell you that until three quarters of the way through the book. 
that breathing pattern is a cycle of very deep, sometimes quite noisy breathing. Sometimes um, the muscles in our throat tighten a little bit so that when we breathe out, we breathe across vocal cords that are not completely relaxed, and that will make people mmm as they're breathing. It doesn't mean they're groaning, but if you didn't know that, you would think they were groaning. And the other part of the cycle is um, more shallow and sometimes quite fast breathing, which can sound panty. And if you didn't know otherwise, you could think that the person was experiencing breathlessness. But both these types of breathing, this alternating between deep and quite noisy and then shallow and quite panty, are indications of being deeply, deeply unconscious. He went on to explain to her that at the very end of somebody's life, during one of these phases of quite shallow breathing, there will simply be an out-breath that isn't followed by an in-breath. So, not like Hollywood. No sudden clutching of your throat or telling people where the treasure is hidden or feeling of choking or feeling of fading away. It's a very, very gentle thing. And over a career in palliative care, and I've spotted several colleagues in here, so I have witnesses, we go into rooms and find that somebody stopped breathing so gently that the people around the bed haven't actually noticed. Mm. The other thing about the breathing that's very important for us to realise is that, um, going back to tea, if your tea goes down the wrong way, you work very hard to clear your airway. You cough, you splutter, you feel that irritation of liquid at the back of your throat. If you're lying flat and you're very unconscious, your mouth will still be making saliva and your lungs will still be making the, the kind of solutions that it makes to clear the airways and keep everything lubricated. And that pulls in the back of our throat. At night time, it pulls in the back of our throat, and actually our throat feels it and causes a reflex which makes us swallow. But that doesn't happen when we're unconscious, because unconsciousness is not the same as sleep. There's no sensation at the back of the throat. So this little pool of liquid gathers there, and the air that's coming in and out of the lungs as the automatic breathing continues, therefore has to go through the liquid, so it bubbles. And that bubbling sounds rattly. And that's the noise that people call the death rattle. The death rattle. As though it's something dreadful. When in fact what it tells you is this person is so deeply relaxed, so deeply comatose, that even that really sensitive bit at the back of the throat that's got liquid in it isn't sensitive to that sensation of mm. liquid. So the airway is safe. You're not going to, you're not going to drown or um, choke on that fluid, but the air will bubble as it's moving. And very often the nurses will come and they'll shift somebody's position. Maybe they'll swab inside the mouth. Sometimes we'll even use little suction apparatus and suck some of that stuff out. But all of that is for the comfort of the family because it isn't actually distressing the patient at all. But since I've written this book, I've had letters from people who've heard those noises and carried those noises with them into bereavement, traumatized by thinking that somebody was suffering. And so I've had the most wonderful letters from people who, having understood the mechanism, now understand that they saw somebody who was so deeply unconscious that they would not have been capable of suffering at that point. And what a fantastic gift to mm. be able to give to people. It's, it's been a really lovely thing. Kathy, and thank you for that. Just before 
we open up for comment and, and, and question. Let me make the point that throughout the book, you have just one page of a pause for thought. And one of the, the first pauses for thought is on patterns, such as the pattern of breathing you've just talked about here. <clears throat> pause for thought on patterns. Pause for thought on my way. Those of us who cope, keep control, avoid the truth, our styles of life and our styles of death, you might say. Naming death, pause for thought on naming death, is passing away and euphemisms. What, what are we doing there? Talking about things as they are. Pause for thought on looking beyond, looking beyond the now. And there's a wonderful section, which all my first year students are getting next week, on stepping back. Stepping back to look, see, and think. Stepping back on legacy, what we have done in our lives for others, what others have done for us. And pause for thought on transcendence. You say, here are the big ideas, you say. And you talk about satisfactions and regrets in our lives, our values, forgiveness, being offended, giving offense. And, and there you talk about love as well. So those moments, those pauses for thought come between the stories, as it were, which, which are great. So it's a good opportunity now, perhaps, for us to, to pause for thought and comment from yourselves. I will peer out into the semi-darkness, and if, oh, there's less than something. We have a hand in the back row, and if you can wait until the microphone comes, it will come. There it is. Well, th thank you for that. Um, the one problem with it was that it's made me think I'll need to buy your book and read it. <laughs> but um, I just wanted to make a couple of comments. Um, one, one is that um, I think the whole issue of death for me, what, it, what the one advantage to it that it brings to me is the idea of equality, that we're all equal on this. And uh, the super rich are also going to die at some point. You know, there's no one is going to avoid it. But um, uh, having uh, been through four different deaths over the last three years, uh, three really close friends and my mother, I've been thinking, uh, and also as a psychotherapist, I've been aware of the unmanageable feelings it raises, you know, the really powerful feelings and how you manage those feelings. It's really difficult. But, but one... One issue which I, I kind of wonder is is the training of staff about it because the one uh, image which will always stay in my mind is that in 1989 when my father died, I was with him, and the, he he was choking and having you know problems with his breathing, uh, and the nurse came rushing in and, and pushed me out and sort of said, "Oh, you you got to go, I, you know, I've got to deal with it," and then of course he just died and you know why not just allow me to be there with it I mean she was obviously feeling really like she had to do something and there was nothing she could do um, but yeah I, I absolutely recognize that I like to see people nodding around the room because there are several health professionals in the room with us and I think that there is an issue here in 1989 I was a junior doctor in palliative care and I also had not yet noticed the pattern. I might also have said, 
ooh, let's, you know, suction the back of his throat, and because the suction and the gurgling makes a noise, let's get the family out, and made the same mistake. Because actually, we're not using death as a training outcome. You can't graduate in medicine in any of the United Kingdom medical schools without having witnessed a certain minimum number of labours and births. It varies from medical school to medical school, but it is mandatory to matriculate in medicine that you know how to deliver a baby. There is no medical school yet that mandates witnessing even one death. Three schools of nursing have now adopted this book as one of their textbooks. And I didn't write it for medical and nursing people. I wrote it to be a public-facing book. But I'm absolutely overjoyed about that because until we start to recognise that everybody dies and that a death that happens in accordance with... Uh, the way the person would want it, with the right people in the room, with the right understandings established between people, that's a, that's a success. And a bad death is a medical failure, but death is not a medical failure. Dying badly is something where we should hang our heads because we know what the pro progression of the sequence of events is. We know how to manage the symptoms. We usually see people changing in enough time to warn families, and yet we still don't value dying well as something that you could actually write on your appraisal form. This year, I've participated in X deathbeds, and over 90% of them seemed to be comfortable, and the family were aware of what was going on. We've got to reclaim dying. Thank you. Please, in the, in the corner by the fireplace there. Um, I'm interested because of personal experience in finding out what is thought about palliative care for people with very advanced dementia. I know of two cases, one with my own mother, of ladies who kept going into their late 90s and we were told that they were remarkably fit for their age. One spent her time either weeping because she didn't know where her husband was or weeping because she'd realised her husband was dead. And the other one forgot everything. She was a woman without a past. She knew nobody, she remembered nothing. And they were obviously heading towards death, but unfortunately their bodies kept on going. Well, um, Nothing, there didn't seem to be any real understanding or plan for how to help them, how to make their winding down, I suppose, more bearable. And I haven't seen or heard anything in the, in the media about this. And you know, it hasn't really been touched on in your talk. It obviously does happen to a significant number of people and I wondered what your views are. Thank you, it's a really, really good question. So the book is uh, views from my own clinical experience, so there are no dementia stories in the book and that is an omission. In 2015, for the first time in England and Wales, dementia was the single highest cause of death of uh, adults in England and Wales. Um, 
that's partly because the cancer st statistics break cancers down by individual types. When you add all of the cancers up, it is much higher than the dementia total. But because we've got an aging population and because we're better at managing other illnesses, uh, those of us who survive into our older age are more than 50% likely to have problems with our memory and a significant number of us will have dementia. It's a time bomb that's waiting to happen and uh, dementia charities are very, very aware of this and so there's quite a lot of talk now going on between the major palliative care charities and the major dementia charities about cross-fertilisation of training. And one of the things, one of the models that people are talking about is that you don't need a palliative care specialist to see every person who's dying, just as you don't need a, a cardiologist to see everybody whose heart rate is a little bit irregular, that actually understanding and being able to provide good holistic care for somebody as their memory and cognitive function change should be part of the learning set of anybody who looks after those people, but that palliative care teams are prepared to come along and, and get alongside when it gets particularly challenging, when their expertise is needed. And part of the difficulty we have with, with the dementias, because it's a whole family of illnesses, is that some people lose their memories, other people retain their memories but become unable to work their bodies in space, for example. There are lots and lots of different ways in which the mind can fail. Um, so it needs to be developed we need to be agitating for it to be developed because there are people who need it now and sure as anything, several of us are going to need it in the future. It's happening behind the scenes. I'm not sure always that media reporting it is something that helps us to move in the right direction, to be honest. Um, but it's, it's not that it's being ignored and a really, really important thing to think about. Thank you. One second row here in the front, please. And then we'll have one behind, and that will probably take us to half past, I guess. Thanks for the book. And I wanted to ask you, um, do you think that now we're overprotected against death, especially for young people? Like, in my experience, I've known a good bunch of people who have passed away. And I've always lived with it, and I've grown up knowing what death was and how to approach it, or at least I thought I did. And then a year and a half ago, my best friend passed away, and nobody told me how she died, or nobody talked to me about it. No, they didn't let me, my family, my friends, they didn't let me see her body or nobody talked to me about it, basically. And do you think that's a problem that should be fixed, in a way? I think it's a symptom of what's happening in the whole of society, isn't it? I'm, I'm really sorry for your story, and thank you very much for being brave enough to tell us. But I think you're describing something that is uh, about the whole of society's attitude for death and that we even are not using the words anymore. So I noticed that you, you used the word passed away because that's what we're starting to say now. So I'd like you all to be people who go out and embrace the D words when you leave 
you know, dying, death, dead, because actually that is what's happening to people. And that actually what is worse than feeling the loss of somebody is feeling the loss without any understanding around what's happened. That's exactly what you're describing, to not see the person, to not hear what the, the process was. Even if what the people saw in the room around somebody dying was not comfortable for them to watch, what we can imagine as the uncomfortable thing is so much worse than probably what people saw. So I think we need to become more literate about death. We need to use the words. We need to be prepared to talk to each other about it. Um, just as a matter of interest, how many people in a very select audience who've chosen to spend Sunday afternoon talking about death have made a will? Can you stick your hands up? Have, have a turn around if you're in the front, because this is quite interesting. Hands as high as you can so we can all see. So it's more than half the room. It's probably three quarters of the room. Okay, thanks, everybody. How many have taken some steps to leave some instructions about your funeral? So that's probably about half the room. How many of you have talked to your family about how you would like things to be while you're actually dying? And now it's only a quarter of the room. Thank you. So that fits with my experience that we're getting better at talking about what will happen after we have died, leaving a will, sorting out a funeral. But we're still not very comfortable in talking about, actually, if I'm so sick that I might die, I'd rather not be in an intensive care unit. I'd rather not have cardiopulmonary resuscitation. If I'm so sick that my heart stops, for God's sake, don't drag me back again. Or I'd have CPR up to the point that my granddaughter's wedding has taken place, and after that, I wouldn't want it. People don't know what we want, but when we're in a state of collapse, our next of kin ask, are asked what we would say if we were there. They're not being asked what to do. They're being asked what we would want. And nobody can speak for us if we haven't told them. So go home, use the D words, and tell people how you'd like your death to look. And then every time you've got a birthday with a five or a zero in it, review your plans, because as we get older, what we would want will change. If you're over 80, review your plans on an annual basis. And if your children won't talk to you about it, your grandnieces and nephews and grandchildren will. So just like when you couldn't tell your mum how naughty you'd been, you could tell your granny or your auntie Jean Okay, it's come full circle now. And because we live into our 80s and 90s, our grandchildren and our grandnieces and nephews are young adults, and we can talk to them when the generation in between won't listen. That's your homework. Right. Perhaps there was just one there. Thank you very much. And maybe this will be our last, I think. Hello. Um, it sort of links in with what we've been saying, actually. Um, my father died on Christmas Day last year, and uh, it sounds a strange thing, but it was the best death he could have had. He was chatting away to us and then died after Christmas lunch. Um, we wrapped him in a blanket on the floor, and then he was in front of the children, uh, and the police came and said, oh, we think it's a, a bit disrespectful because somebody's put a packet of crisps on my father lying on the floor, and my son piped up his tent and said, oh, but Grandad liked crisps. And I think it's about, we need to talk about death a bit more. In a way, the worst time to talk about it is when it's happening. Uh, and, you know, it's important we talk to our children and other young people about it, because it's going to happen to us all. 
And I think it was just a nice experience, if that's, that's a strange thing to say, but it was the best thing for all of us to witness as well. And some years before that, we witnessed an unpleasant death with my mother with cancer, and myself and my sisters worked in palliative care because of that. And it was so nice to see something that was much better and better handled at the end of the, uh, my father's life. Thank you so much for telling us that. Thank you. The other thing I'd like to say is the number of people who, you know, at parties when they find out what you do, they want to tell you their death stories. And the number of people who say to me, well, when my mum, my husband, my son, my brother died, we know it was really, really unusual. We were very lucky because it was so peaceful. It was so nice. It was almost, it was almost joyful. Um, but I don't like to tell other people because everybody else has had such a terrible experience. I could tear my hair out because actually they're describing normal dying. Go out and share your death stories, folks, because it's going to happen to us all. And if we only talk about the traumatic stories, everybody will believe that only traumatic stories exist. And for, you know, I, I've done my totals, I did my sums, Working through all of the different teams that I've worked in in a career in palliative care, I've been associated with the care of people at the end of their lives for between 10 and 15,000 people. Please don't call the police. In that time, I can honestly say to you that there are about a dozen where I've thought, I really would not want this to be happening to me or somebody that I love and this is taking too long, and this is really, really difficult. That's such a tiny percentage of the total number of deaths, but they all get into the Daily Mail. They all get talked about, about, oh, you know what happened to so-and-so's mother. Until we start telling our good death stories to help people to regain the balance, we will remain afraid. It's, it, this is a people thing. This isn't a medical thing, and we owe it to each other to come out and talk about dying. I hope this book will start the conversation, but I can't do it on my own. I, I, you know, I give it to you, and it's up to you what you make of it. We have one final one in the front row here, folks. Thanks. So three months ago, uh, I saw the registrar, and uh, the end of the conversation basically was, uh, it's not the end game. On the other hand, when I saw the consultant and asked the question, I, told, I was told I've got a year. Is there a good way for the registrar and the consultant to ask about what the patient, whether they want to know, um, whether they need the time to prep? Are you suggesting that, that it would be better not to tell people, or no? So it not better, it's much better to tell people but the point was the registrar didn't ask if we wanted to know. Right. And I, reckon, I understand that's difficult to ask. How do you find out if the patient wants to know? Mm. Um, and if not, how do you get them to start thinking about it? Okay, so that's a really good question. Thank you for telling us your story. So um, I, I usually use a really subtle question with my patients, like, are you the kind of person who likes to know good, bad news? Or do you prefer to let other people do the worrying for you? Something like that. And most people will know that that question is, am I going to tell you or am I going to tell somebody else? The next thing is that I ask people 
whether they prefer their truth to be given in little chunks, in bite-sized chunks, or whether they'd rather have a big picture and then work out where the chunks fit. Because different people are wired different ways. And I'm a big picture person, so I tend to give people a big picture. But you might be a person who actually just wants to know this little bit today and that little bit next month. And what I need to do is work out what works for you, not what works for me if I'm your doctor. But one of the things that we need to do is to train doctors in how to have these tender interpersonal conversations where two people are hurting. And if you've got family in the room with you, more than two people are hurting because the patient is hurting and the person who's watching them with attention is hurting. The doctor is also hurting because telling bad news stinks and none of us enjoys doing it. And because we never get feedback, nobody ever says, do you know what, you did that really well, or that, thanks for telling me that, but I would have liked it better if you'd done it like this. So if there's any way you can write to them now and say, guys, this bit was great, but those bits could do with being done a little bit more like this, would you like me to come back and talk to you about how I would like it done? That would be really, really powerful and helpful. When my wife and I saw the consultant, um, we asked her to talk to the registrar, her mm -hmm. registrar, um, and pass the knowledge on, effectively. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And how would you feel if they were going to lay on some training in the hospital about coming back and talking about your experience? Yeah, fine. Yeah. Um, I'm offering my body. I'm quite happy to offer thoughts while I can talk. Because I think that actually, when we think about health services, health care is for all of us, isn't it? It's delivered on behalf of all of us by some of us. But those of us who are patients in the system can also contribute to the training and the maintenance and the learning of the whole system on behalf of everybody else. So maybe you want to get yourself invited along there now. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Catherine, on your behalf, you can thank on your own behalf. Catherine, thank you very much for coming, for the conversation, for the book, which will be there, which people can not just buy and read, but pass around. I got a feeling it's one of those pass around books as well. But ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Writing North podcast recorded at Durham Book Festival 2018. Durham Book Festival is a Durham County Council event produced by New Writing North with support from Durham University and Arts Council England. New Writing New North. Writing North. New Writing You're North. listening to a podcast New by New North. Writing North.